If you have your Bibles, please open them to Joel chapter 1. If you do not have your Bible, it will be behind me on the screen. And we're going to start with verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord that came to Joel the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it. And let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locusts left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locusts left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. May God bless the reading of his word. Before we uh, begin to look at each of these verses in Joel... I thought it would be a good idea to consider the date, the location, and the author of these prophecies. And this is something we do every, every time we start a new book. But um, Unfortunately, when it comes to the date of Joel, there's not much to go on within Joel itself. And because of this, there are a wide number of theories as to when these prophecies were uttered. And they range quite literally from the 9th century B.C., to the 4th century B.C., so 500 years. <laughs> um, they kind of debate this. Um, ultimately, if pressed, I would say it's the two date areas that seem the most likely to me are around 801 B.C. or sometime in the 590s. And honestly, that doesn't mean much, I think, to the majority of people, but it's there for your information. Um, when it comes to the location, scholars all agree that Joel's ministry was focused in the southern kingdom of Judah. Um, And whether this was even more focused on Jerusalem or not is debatable, but there's little doubt that Judah was the primary place for these prophecies. And this actually goes against Amos, for example. Amos was in Israel, as we remember, and he was in the north. Well, Joel is in the south, and he's prophesying there. Now, when it comes to Joel himself, there's little information given. Uh, Unlike Amos, there is nothing to inform us that Joel had another profession. If we remember Amos, he uh, took care of uh, sycamore trees, or actually took care of trees in general, and cattle. Whereas here, we have no information about Joel. Um, And we don't even know exactly where Joel was from originally, the same way that we do from Amos. And this may be purposeful. It may be leading us to reflect not so much on Joel, the prophet, the person, but on the message he was given to proclaim. And so it's with all this that we go to verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Previously, we discussed how there was little information concerning Joel, uh, the person. And this verse is about it. We know that his name is Joel and that he is the son of Pethuel. It was common occurrence in both the Old and New Testaments to refer to an individual by their fathers. And we see that with James and John, the son of Zebedee, for example, in the New Testament. It was a way to distinguish those who had similar names because a lot of the times they had all the same name. In fact, uh, during the New Testament era, for example, the time of Jesus, 50% of the women had the name Mary. Mary, you win. <laughs> um, but so, yeah, that's why you see Mary Magdalene, Mary the, uh, the mother of Jesus, because they all had Mary as their name. Um, and now when it comes to the name Joel, it means Yahweh is God. Uh, scholars note that the progression of the name Joel started with Yahweh-el and then became Yahweh-el and ultimately Yoel, um, the form in which we see today, which is we say Joel. Uh, in this way, we see the covenant name of God of Israel with the generic form of the word of God. And so Yahweh, the covenant name, and El, God just in general. 
And so in this way, Yahweh is God means that he is the supreme God of all. And that's what Joel, his name means. It means God. Yahweh is God. Yet, as was said previously, the focus is not so much on Joel. Instead, the focus is that this is the word of the Lord. Hence, it is an authoritative word which should be listened to and heeded with all attention. So we begin. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened to happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it. And let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. Because it is the word of the Lord, we see the demand right up front to pay attention. As Joel says, hear this and give ear. This is meant for the people to hear the word and to take seriously what is being proclaimed. Yet, who are to hear? Well, Joel begins with the elders and then leads directly to all the inhabitants of the land. The elders are those who are the leaders of the land, whether they be actual kings or those who have authority in both political and religious settings. It's them, those leaders. Yet the call does not end with just the leaders as we see, but it leads to all the inhabitants of the land. This reminds us that the prophetic statement is not focused on one group of people, but is given to all the people to consider. Joel then leads directly to what it is that they are taking heed of, and it is quite an event which is taking place before their eyes. We notice he asks, Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Whatever the event which has taken place is should give the people pause to consider. In fact, they are not only to consider it, but they are to speak to future generations about it. Just as he focused on the past by reflecting on their own history and the history of their grandparents, now he goes to the future. He wants them to tell their children, this event must be remembered for the future. Verse 4, what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. What is the event that Joel wants them to remember? To speak about repeatedly throughout their generations? The answer is a plague of locusts. There is considerable debate as to this verse. The question scholars ask is, is this literal or is this figurative, metaphorical? Was there really a locust plague with grasshoppers, or was Joel using locusts as a metaphor for a conquering army? Both interpretations fit within context, and I suspect that this debate will rage on for some time. So if you have a preferred view, go for it. If you don't have a preferred view, be happy with that. I personally do not have a preferred view. I think they both work. Um, That said, what does Joel describe? He describes a devastating locust plague. In fact, what one locust group ate, the cutting locusts, left, the swarming locusts ate. And what they left over, the hopping locusts ate. And what the hopping locusts left, the destroying locusts ate. What could possibly be left? And that's the point. The devastation of the locust plague is extremely severe. And because of this, Joel wants the people to take heed to this devastation. Yet why would Joel want the people to focus on such a plague? The answer lies in the fact that Joel knows the Levitical and the Deuteronomical curse laws, something which, as we remember, Amos and all the prophets share in common. 
They all recognize and see these curse laws being played out against the people. And because of this, they urge them to turn from their course. Thus, right from the beginning in Joel, we see a judgment already occurring on the people. Whether this is all a metaphor for a nation such as Babylon or Assyria, because we know that they attacked Judah, or it is an actual plague which represents a future catastrophe by invading armies, does not change the devastating property which is the focus. For either they are being devastated by locusts currently, or they are going to be invaded by an army already, which will lead to an even greater devastation to come. And in both cases of either plague of locusts or invading armies, we see as curses in the law for disobedience and faithful, faithlessness. And that's the point. Joel is bringing about and recognizing we are cursed right now for a reason. And it's because we're faithless. So the main point of these verses are to show two things. The first is who the prophet is and where his authority comes from. And the second concerns the locusts. In this way, the stage is set for what we will encounter with Joel as he prophesies over the people. All right, so I'm, I'm thinking right now, you're all wondering, okay, what on earth is he going to apply to this? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> what are we going to get from this? What's the application? There's got to be something, right? There is, I hope. <laughs> all right, the first is being a prophet. Um, and that's the first thing that really comes to mind when we read over the verses, these verses in Joel, is that Joel himself... If you notice, there's not much information given concerning Joel. Um, We learn his name and his father's name. Besides this, there's not a great deal of information. In fact, apart from this, there's no information concerning the man. That is a fairly common theme among the prophets. Generally speaking, we do not have much information on many of the prophets. We are not often granted glimpses of the prophets in their own right. That is, if we were to know about Joel the person, there is nothing more to be seen within this text. But that is what makes being a prophet so interesting. Because while we do not receive much information about the person Joel, we do find out the most important information of all, which is the word of the Lord which came to Joel. Of all the information we could receive about Joel, that is the most important. If Joel's prophecies do not come from God, then it means nothing what he says. For we know that all things that the word of the Lord is will last. And that's the focus. This then makes me think of each of us. Um, What is the most important attribute about us? Or when you think about yourself, what do you think is most special? If you were to consider the future, generations... What do you want your kids or your grandkids or your great-grandkids to remember about you? Um, What is it you want to be known for and remembered for? I would guess that many of us are thinking of something unique about us. Maybe we're thinking um, we want to be remembered for our kindness or our love. And some might be thinking of a particular ability that you may have been given. Um, Some people might be thinking of singing or woodworking. Or um, business owning, why not? Personally, I think any of these things are wonderful. However, maybe we should begin to be more like the prophets. Instead of thinking of vague or miscellaneous things which we want to be remembered for, what if we desired to be remembered for was that we glorified God with our lives, that we were used by God with our lives, 
living prophetically in the areas which God has called us to. Consider again the prophets. Consider Joel again. There are three things we now remember by him, and that is his name, his father's name, and that he was used by God. When we really think about it, is anything more important than this? Knowing who we are, knowing where we've come from, and knowing God is glorified through us. Some of you might be thinking, yeah, but I'm no Joel. I'm no Amos. I'm no prophet who's been given a word of the Lord. But this is where I say nonsense. Of course you are if you are in Christ. The problem is we often forget what it means to be in Christ and how easy it is for us to forget about our callings here and now. For example, if you are a mother, you have a calling to be a mother. The word of the Lord has come to you in how you are to be a mother. How you are to raise up your children in the light, guiding them through this life, showing them, teaching them the gospel of Christ, the wisdom of God Almighty. By doing this, you are prophetic over your children, but you are also being prophetic to the society around you. Other mothers will look at you and see you in your witness to your children. They will notice you in your love for your children and see in you what God has called of you and see what God has called them to as well. We can all even set aside the notion of motherhood or fatherhood and consider another way of looking at it. The prophets were individuals who stored up their treasures in heaven, willing to sacrifice their lives for the sake of God and his kingdom. The question is, are you, am I, Are you ready and willing, beginning and continuing, to store up your treasures in heaven, being willing to be remembered by your name, your parents' names, and the most important thing you did was serve God, where God called you to serve? All of us will meet our God. When we do, let us not be a people who collected unimportant things. Let us not be a people who focus too greatly on here and now. Instead, let us look ever to the future of that moment. When we come face to face with the Lord, and when asked, what have you done with what you've had? We simply point to Christ. This world is not in need of Christians who make great names for themselves. What this world needs are those who are willing to empty themselves for the sake of the glory of God. For this I am sure, that those who empty themselves will find themselves filled with the glory of In the end, seek this above all and be willing to be remembered for your devotion to God above all. For in this way, we are all prophets to each other and to the world around us. Now, this leads to the second point locusts. So far in Joel, we have already discussed locusts. You know, there's nasty grasshoppers. Uh, The way that this locust plague is described by Joel shows us just how severe the circumstances have become. Nothing was left once the locusts descended and departed. They ate all the crops of the land with nothing left for the people, the cattle, nothing. In other words, the harvest was no more. I suppose it would be hard for us to relate physically with such an event. In North America, such locust swarms are rather uncommon. Uh, Not many have likely experienced any such event. Have any of you experienced a locust swarm? No, it doesn't happen here. We're, we're kind of lucky in that way. 
This, however, does not mean that it is unrelatable or irrelevant. Indeed, one could say that while we have not experienced a physical locust plague in recent memory, if at all, we can say that such a swarm of locusts has indeed descended, and we have felt the effects of such a plague individually and corporately. Now, at this point, I hope I have piqued your interest. I am hoping everyone here is asking, what is he talking about? Well, I would say that the locust plague, which we have experienced and which we may very well be continuing to experience, is not literal, but metaphorical. In two areas we have seen it. The first is in society in general, and the second is within the Christian religion in America. When it comes to society, it is easy to see the devastating effects of, let's say, naturalism and other philosophical worldviews, which have had upon the culture and each generation up until the present. We have seen the repercussions, for example, of the sexual revolution, which has its foundings in naturalism, and we see the effects of it on society. For the sexual revolution, it is a matter of letting off the chains of religion and morality, and instead people should be unburdened and free to live how they want, especially sexually. So it is with the philosophical teachings of the past concerning naturalism, the sexual revolution began to firmly be implanted in the schools, specifically higher education. Once the schools began to teach it, the culture slowly began to follow. It has come to the point where sexuality is present especially within the media, with TV, uh, TV shows, and the music industry. Sex sells, and it sells a view of humanity which makes us actually far less than human. Thus, the locusts have eaten away the fabric of our society in general. And it is not just with sexuality. Those who are old enough to remember when Gone with the Wind came out for the first time. Any of you remember that? I love the movie. I'm going to admit it. I love it. However, Gone with the Wind was critiqued for having the first curse word ever in movies. Frankly, Scarlett, I don't give a lamb. Um, But now such things are blasé. Such things don't matter, curse words even. Yes, we can see the effects of locusts. But we would be lying if we did not say that the church has been unaffected over the years. In fact, one could almost paint a picture of the different locust swarms that have occurred within American Christianity, starting with the 80s and 90s with the seeker-sensitive movement, in which theology was thrown out the window for the sake of making it easier for the unbeliever to worship and enter into heaven through easy believism. To the uh, 1990s, to 2000s, where social justice dethroned the proclamation of the gospel and making disciples as the most important mission of the church, to now, when Christianity has become so syncretized with the American dream through the proclamation of the prosperity gospel, that they are almost indistinguishable. The Jesus of the prosperity gospel is Joel Osteen, not Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. As this gospel proclaims, God only wants to make you healthy and wealthy. That's what the prosperity gospel preaches. It's all about you. Thus, whereas Christianity was once a thinking religion, it has become an entertainment religion. Whereas in the past, Christianity led to changes in individuals, and therefore society, it has become no big deal if no change actually occurs. 
where the love of God changes individuals to the love of God accepting individuals as they are. No repentance necessary, or in some cases, no repentance or even faith in Christ necessary. Now consider where we are. Churches are closing down. Empty pews are filling our congregations. Our numbers dwindle. The faithful who have been faithful remain faithful while being surrounded in their towns by individuals who at one time prayed a prayer and now believe that they are going to heaven because they believe in a God they've never actually encountered. Locusts. Locusts have devoured so much in American Christianity. Locusts in the form of bad preaching, bad teaching, bad theology, and bad doctrine. Locusts in the form of preachers who should have spent more time reading their Bibles than doing anything else. Locusts in the form of lazy congregations who believe it is only one or two individuals who should be doing all the work of the church, rather than realizing that the church is a body of Christ, with many members involved in many ways. Locusts in the form of those who have said, Sinner, pray this prayer and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and you shall be saved, not realizing that such a transformation of the heart occurs by God's grace, and that the heart in the scriptures is so deceptive and evil that even that proclamation can be just that, a proclamation and not a life-changing event. Locusts. I think if we really consider it, we should all be saying, Enough! All of these things should be causing us to be angry over what has occurred to American Christianity. We should be furious over what we see happening. We should be getting out of our brooms, and we should be getting out our brooms and our pesticides, getting out the sword of God to combat these locusts. We should be shouting out, No more! No more will we allow Christ to be trampled on. No more will we seek only to improve numbers the way that the stores do. No more will we allow ourselves to be complacent in the truth of the gospel. No more will we allow ourselves to be sedated by poor teaching and preaching. Enough! Let Christ shine. Let us rise. Let the world know the fire of God. And the glory of God, which comes through the proclamation of his word by our lips. The lamb has been slain. He is worthy of all of us to remain faithful to him alone. Enough. No more. Who will stand? Who will stand against such things if not us? Who will speak into the culture in darkness if not those who are called to carry the light? Who will defeat the locusts? Will you fight? Will you stand? Will you fight a greater war than the war against ISIS? Greater than the wars which rage on the planet? Will you wage a war against the darkness itself? Will you seek peace, love, justice, giving mercy and grace, sound arguments and truth to combat the evil of this world? If not you, if not us, then who? It is time to fight the locusts. It is time for us to make ready by seeking the scriptures, seeking prayer, by growing in knowledge and wisdom of God, by seeking and defending the truth, doing it all by loving God with all of our hearts, all of our minds, all of our souls, and all of our strength. In this way, we can beat back the locusts. In this way, we can reclaim what 
we have lost. Locusts come in swarms, and they devour a great deal. They have already devoured much, but there's hope. For a new harvest is just beyond the horizon. It will mean replanting. It will mean re-sowing and reseeding. It will mean a greater transformation within us. It will mean relying more on the grace of God than we have in the past. And it will mean us being more faithful than we've ever been. But if Christ is our brother, and if he is our redeemer, then we have hope. For we know that he is strong enough to undo all the works of the devil. Those within and outside of American Christianity. He can redeem houses. He can redeem streets. He can redeem blocks, towns, and cities. All that he requires of us is faithfulness. In what we have been called to do individually and corporately. So stand strong. There is much more life for each of us to give to Christ. Much more for us to do until our last breath escapes our lips. If the locusts are going to come in greater numbers, then let us face them head on. For even if there are but a few to stand against them all, we have a greater strength in Christ in whom all victories are won. And that, of course, leads us to the gospel. So far in Joel, we do not have much, but we do have a start. We can see how easily locusts have plagued our own time as it did back then, albeit in different ways. Thankfully for us, we do not need to cower and quiver at what we see. Instead, we can rise to the challenge, finding strength in Christ. Because that is where this strength comes from. It comes from Christ. If he conquered, then we will conquer as well. Faithfulness, that is the key. Faithful to love God with all of who we are, individually and corporately. To be faithful to cling to the very gospel which teaches us all of these things. And this gospel begins with our origins, that God created all things by the power of his word. Last of all, he created humanity to be his image bearers. Because God is a God of love, reason, knows, can be known, has personhood, and displays hesed, his loving kindness on his own people, we can share that and we can experience it and we can also as well. It is here we find dignity, sanctity, and worth to all human life, not some. Like God, we were also able to choose. We could either choose to follow God in obedience and into life or disobedience into sin and death. We chose the latter as a race and... We have continued to make that choice ever since. Because of this, our relationships with God, ourselves, each other, and the world, they're all broken. It is because of this we continue to accrue a greater moral guilt before our God every day. Not a feeling of guilt, but true guilt before a righteous God. God did not have to leave us in this state forever. Instead, he sent his light and his word into our darkness, and that was Jesus Christ, his Son. Jesus lived, died, and rose again in time, space, history, and flesh. It is to him all the prophets point. It was by his sacrifice we find our redemption. It is because of him our relationships can begin to be reconciled. And because of his blood, our guilt before God is cast aside forever. His victory in life and over death becomes our victory in life over death. 
All that is required of us is obedience in two things. The first is repentance. We are to live a lifestyle which is congruent with the scriptures for the glory of God. We are not to live however we please. Nor are we to live for self. Instead, we are to live for God and his holy name in adherence to the scriptures, walking in step with the Spirit in love. The second is that we are to place our faith in Christ Jesus. We must recognize our dependence upon the Son of God for our salvation. It is not what we are able to do which saves us, but what Christ has done. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone, we are saved. For those who are disobedient in these things, there is only condemnation. None can stand before God with their own deeds in hand. For sin has corrupted even their greatest deeds. And because of this, to stand before God apart from Christ is to stand worthy of all judgment because of sin. For those who are obedient, however, there is no longer condemnation. Instead, they stand before God redeemed of their sins through Christ. Their lifestyles are no longer bound to sin, but to Christ. They become inheritors of an eternal kingdom where they will experience the love of God, the peace of God forever. Remember, be encouraged and challenged today. For though the locusts are all around us, we can be sure that Christ is greater than any swarm of locusts we encounter. If the church is his body, then we can be sure that the victory will come no matter the circumstances if we remain faithful to him in all things, individually and corporately. Therefore, let us remain faithful, seeking to glorify God with all of who we are. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your grace, your peace, your mercy, and the great love that you share with us through your Son, Jesus Christ. We know that he has conquered. We have just rejoiced over his conquering sin and death. So Lord, let Easter remain with us, because when we remember the strength of Christ and how he was raised, we will know too the strength of Christ and be encouraged to continue onward to the battle. Lord, let us be willing to fight, Let us be strong and give us again your son to guide us all the steps that we take. We thank you, Lord. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Please rise as we sing.